Welcome to Brandon Avat. Uh, today we are delighted to be joined by Mark Lance, uh, who teaches at Georgetown University, and we're going to be talking about anarchism. Uh, Mark, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Sure. Um, so, so the anarchism starts with the thought, how could we organize ourselves socially as broadly as possible without coercion, and, and especially without institutionalizing coercion? So um, maybe just spell that out a little bit. Right when you make decisions in your household, or you decide where to go to dinner with your friends, or your church decides what it's going to do, uh, no one's in charge. No one's going to be thrown in a cage and locked up if they make uh, if they do it wrong. Uh, no one has uh, guns to uh, police other people. You talk about things and you figure out what the right thing to do is, and and you do it. Uh, so anarchism simply asks the question: Couldn't we do that? across the board? Why do we need to organize ourselves around uh, prisons and laws that are enforced by uh, threat of force? Why do we need to divide up goods by enforcing certain people's private ownership of those goods? What if we just cooperated with one another? Is that, is that an imaginable way to, uh, to organize society? So, Mark, um, we recently had another guest on the show, uh, Mike Humer, who also considers himself um, an anarchist. Um, but the two of you diverge on your type of anarchism. So um, you mentioned property rights there. Mm -hmm. um, so Mike is um, what might be called a free market anarchist. And so he believes that property rights are incredibly important. And, mm -hmm. um, and he thinks that uh, the economy should be structured in such a way that people own stuff. Um, and it sounds like your type of anarchism is more left-leaning in the sense that people would not own stuff, but they would share and cooperate. Mm -hmm. is, is that a fair understanding? Absolutely, right. So, so historically, the, the term arose um, among a, a divide within the socialist or communist movement, right? So Marx and Bakunin were the two co-heads of the First International, and they split over the question of whether there should be a temporary dictatorship of the proletariat with Marx uh, taking on the kind of what's known as the authoritarian uh, socialist position and Bakunin the libertarian socialist position. What they ha had in common was the socialist part. Um, so, so, I mean, you know, any anar anarchist in this sense, uh, that, that's the historical sense that's been around for a couple hundred years, the word, I mean, is gonna ask what, what is property? Well, to claim that you own a thing is to say that you personally have the right to use it or destroy it or control it and to prevent anyone else from using it. So it's explicitly designed, it's, it's quite explicitly defined in terms of a restriction on liberty, right? So if you own all the corn, no one else can eat the corn unless you let them. Now, this may not seem to matter much if we're talking about you know, a few hammers, this is your hammer, this is my hammer or something like this. But if you are talking about the institutionalization of markets that allow the accumulation of property, it matters quite a lot. And you get the kind of uh, economic divisions that we actually see in the real world that are all ultimately upheld by threat of violence, right? Because what is it, what happens if I try to take some of that corn that you own? Well, the police will arrest me and toss me in a cage, or if I resist, they'll shoot me. Um, so no traditional anarchist is going to support, well, there's, there's, there's variance on details, but no one's going to support the private ownership of the means of production. The idea that you can accumulate property and then own the ability to create more property, which forces other people to rent their labor to you. This is seen by anarchists as, uh, really one of the core infringements of human freedom. So economic decisions for uh, an anarchist uh, are made democratically through direct uh, deliberative democratic processes, just like any other decision. Uh, the goods of society are shared. Uh, some anarchists have, have said, well, private, you know, the, the goods you're specifically using yourself, you can can be divided up because that's just a convenient way to, to do this. There's no point to have a community meeting every time we decide who gets a hammer. 
but but certainly anything like a factory or a farm will be managed by all the workers who who participate in it, all the people whose labor actually creates value in those. So so on that sort of the economic side, the anarchists have always been uh, in agreement with with Marx. It's more on the what people think of as the political side, where again Marx uh, Marxists traditionally have focused around. Uh, a kind of political party that would structure the government and run the economy and other aspects of, of society on behalf of the people. Whereas the anarchists have rejected that and said, anytime you institutionalize that kind of control, it tends to ossify and grow and, and rather have uh, advocated for directly democratic, uh, specifically deliberatively democratic institutions to uh, control society. So we think of people like Mike as uh, being opposed to institutionalized coercion except economic and, uh, and ourselves as being opposed to institutionalized coercion full stop. So I've got a couple of clarification questions. The one is, it seems like you have a couple of values embedded inside of a political system. Um, one of them is, let's say, the renunciation of property rights, and the other one is the idea of deliberative democracy. So I want to see if there are certain tensions that can arise through the system. So first of all, let's imagine that your democratic people uh, deliberate and agree to the system initially, where they say uh, no one will own anything and we'll all share in the common good. And this is what your democracy decides. But over time, that democratic world changes. And some people say, well, actually... Um, I'm the one who's making this thing and I'm the one who's growing the crops and I'm going to portion off a section for myself and I'm going to claim uh, private ownership over it. At what juncture then, what is, the, what is the remedy for the anarchist? In other words, what do you do now when you have a situation where someone has, let's say, um, modified the rules, but there is no enforcer? And the other one is, let's say that you did have a modification of the rules as well so the democracy shifts accordingly in other words it says well we've deliberated and actually we think that uh, these sectors of industry or these people get to own things uh, but now this the, the deliberations have produced norms which are out of accordance with the grand theory of anarchism but so let's just start with your um uh, example someone says i'm going to just grow these crops and not cooperate with anyone these are mine um, this actually arose in, in the 1920s in anarchist Spain. Um, there were uh, a few sort of small business owners who didn't want to cooperate with the uh, general collectivization that was going on throughout Catalonia. And this was very broad. It, 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 it encompassed pretty much every industry in the Catalonian region of, of Spain, uh, which was also doing much better economically than the rest of Spain. So it's, you know, people claim it's just unworkable in practice. I think historically that's just false. Um, and, and there was groups of people said, well, how, what should we deal? Should we force these people to cooperate with this system or, or let them go it alone? And the general sense was that um, you shouldn't coerce people into, even into sort of anarchist practices um, that they had every right to, if they have a small farm and they just wanna build a fence around it and farm it themselves and live off that, they have a right to do that. We have a right to not cooperate with them in any way. Uh, we'll trade with them if we want to, but we're not required to trade with them. We're not required to take care of them. And you know, if we're, we're building schools and building health clinics and building other things, if they're refusing to be part of society, uh, then we don't feel an obligation. We won't feel an obligation to uh, donate these things to them. And a, a, and a second sort of line was drawn. And if they try to coerce other people to work on their farm, you know, as, as wage or indentured servants or whatever form it might be, that's where we'll draw the line and we will intervene. Um, now, so a second point, coercion. Um, anarchists don't reject all coercion in all circumstances. I mean, it's after all a revolutionary philosophy it called, called for and has implemented actual revolutions around the world. I mean, so that's pretty straightforwardly coercion. What it opposes is building society around the institutionalization of coercion. So I don't you know, if you're just, you build a little farm and you secretly hire, you secretly capture six slaves. Well, we'll have a meeting and we'll discuss that and we'll, we'll come to your farm and we'll free those slaves. 
and you know, hopefully not kill you. But in the end, if it comes to that, that's not sort of ruled out in principle by any kind of universal maxim or something. Um, in practice, anarchists have been far less uh, inclined to move toward things like violence than uh, non-anarchists have, have, have adopted all kinds of elaborate uh, mechanisms of reparative, restorative justice and community uh, restoration and things like this. If you look at, for example, the legal system that operates currently in, in the Zapatista territories of Chiapas, which is doesn't use the word anarchism, but it's very much along these lines. Uh, when somebody does something harmful to society, uh, people and an ad hoc Community of a committee of representatives is elected by the community. They bring together the people, they discuss it, they work out a, a, a restorative and reparative uh, response. In principle, end of the day, someone could be completely expelled from society if they, so for example, just absolutely refuse to um, participate uh, or to cease harming other people. This, this incredibly rarely happens. Uh, the vast majority of, of crime and things like that occurs precisely because of inequality and other, other forms of uh, structural harm that, that exist within a, within a capitalist society. But it's, you know, it's, not, it's not forbidden, but what is forbidden is building up the police. We're never going to make, you know, Mark the cop whose job it is to carry guns around and enforce a set of rules on the rest of us. Um, but you know, if, if things go really badly, we may all decide that we have to take up arms and do something uh, different. You know, lots of different anarchists have had different views on uh, those kind of questions of violence versus nonviolence. But the, on the institutionalization of things like police and prisons and, and standing armies, uh, no, that's right out. So it, it, it's a nice idea to think that um, all bad behavior or the vast majority of bad behavior is caused by inequality. Um, but I, I just don't buy that. Um, I'm more of an individualist. I think that people's behavior is much more determined by their psychology. And I think that there's going to be some bad apples in every society um, mm -hmm. and probably just as many um, on my view, because they're going to have, you know, these psychological traits, which often genetic or come from traumatic experiences in childhood, which needn't be caused by inequality. Um, so given that, and given that you don't want a police force, what is your way of making sure that those bad apples don't run rife? Well, I, I mean, first of all, I, I will say that I, I just, I mean, certainly psychological factors of the kind you're talking about matter, but it's also just completely clear that sociological factors matter as well. Right, I mean, um, I, I don't think there's any serious uh, debate among, among, among social scientists about this. Um, poverty breeds crime uh, and, and, and many, you know, many crimes are simply a, almost definitely, definitionally the result of, uh, of inequality, but, but leave, it, leave that as it may. Um, first of all, there's nothing that guarantees anything, right? Uh, you can't, we're not uh, aiming for a perfect society. No one is. We're aiming for to continually make society freer, more horizontal, more participatory. Um, no, no, no schema that anyone's going to come up with is going to absolutely rule out uh, violence. And certainly, you know, defenders of current uh, institutions of states and police and stuff shouldn't pretend that that's the standard, right? I mean, uh, let's just look at the wars and prison populations of, of modern societies, right? Now, so what do you do about people that have, you know, whatever kinds of uh, untoward psychology that um, leads them to do antisocial things? Well, uh, you build uh, educational systems and social work systems and uh, job training systems and you know, you employ all of those mechanisms first and you put restrictions on the individual last. So, I mean, look, there, what the vast majority of violent crime in modern industrialized societies is carried out by a very specific age range of people, right? From uh, teenagers, basically, teenagers to, to 20s. Um, vastly less violence by people either younger or older than that. 
Um, some of the most effective ways of preventing teen violence is by keeping teens busy. Um, there was uh, back in the 90s, there was a, 80s and 90s, there was a program that was sort of maligned by the right wing, but uh, called Midnight Basketball, where they set up these, these youth leagues of kids uh, playing basketball. It cut crime quite, quite significantly. So, I mean, look, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, what the specific response to any particular psychological problem will be will depend on the problem. But that that's the idea. We have a lot of tools at our disposal. And I think there's, uh, you know, among the least effective tools at actually preventing the kind of basic crimes that we care about, things like violence, uh, assault, rape, things like that. I mean, there's, there's kind of not, by definition, not going to be theft if everyone can use whatever goods they want to use. The, one of the least effective ways of preventing that is throwing people in prison. Prison tends to make people more violent. Uh, you, you lock someone in a cage for 10 years, they generally come out more with, with greater antisocial tendencies than they went in with. But again, you know, end of the day, will there be some people who are just broken irreparably and a total danger to society? Sure, and we'll have to figure out what to do with them. Um, maybe we have to lock a, a given person up because every time they're freed, they just start attacking people and killing them. Um, that'll be a community decision that's made. What we, again, what we don't do is, is institute a standing police force. Um, remember that the, the institution of, of, of standing police forces um, in, in cities is about 150 years old. It's like humans survived without this for a very, very long time. It's, it's an extremely new, uh, new institution. It, it, it's not like this is just the idea that we might do without that is, is a made up idea. We, we did do without that. I mean, my, my general view of, of human nature is that there isn't any. Humans are highly malleable people. They're very, uh, they vary radically with their circumstances and their conditions. And I think there's overwhelming anthropological evidence for that. But one thing that is a common is that humans do have a uh, drive for what, what Kropotkin called mutual aid, right? We're, we're a species that is deeply dependent upon other members of our species, right? Um, human babies are by far the most vulnerable creatures, right? Most uh, animals, babies within a week or two can survive on their own. A human baby will, die for years, drop a two-year-old in the jungle, it won't survive on its own. Um, humans uh, grow up, uh, it, it's our sociability and our ability to, to protect one another that gives us an, our evolutionary niche that we survive in. And, you know, anarchists, the anarchist view is that let's start from that inclination toward mutual aid and strengthen it in every way we can. That is, again, to say through you know, education, uh, common purpose, uh, common projects, and then you know therapy and mental health and all of those fancy modern things. Let's do everything we can to strengthen the principle of mutual aid and build our social relations around that instead of building our social relations around our inclinations toward selfishness and uh, uh, yeah, self-interest, which is kind of the, the guiding principle of a capitalist economy. It says people sometimes are selfish, so let's structure the entire economy around that goal. I mean, you know, this, it's an odd choice to make. So one of the institutions you've spoken quite a bit about is education institutions. So I, I wonder a couple mm -hmm. of things. The one is um, your view is it would be good if we could um, get our community to imbibe certain values um, mm -hmm. and that would make them behave well. And, and you take this view of kind of a blank slateism that people can be molded um, to do good things. They're like clay um, uh, if there is no underlying human nature. So I, I wonder, can we force people to go to these educational institutions? In other words, can someone say, I don't want to go to your school. I don't want to hear your... Uh, your normal propaganda. I want to lead my free life and I don't want you to coerce me into anything. And the other one is, 
are there any side constraints? So again, we have the sense of participation and the community deciding. Can the community decide, for example, every twin um, will be murdered um, because we don't like twins? Um, and the community takes a vote and because twins are incredibly rare, you know, those, those people that are twins uh, or, you know, think they're going to conceive twins, well, they get outvoted. You know, uh, is it a vote system or is it that we need to have total consensus? Um, you know, is there a way to protect, you know, let's say minority groups that could be subject to, you know, uh, group disdain? Are there other underlying norms in the society? And if there are such norms, is there any way of protecting the norm through an enforcement? Sure, norm? sure, sure. Two questions, you know, what once an anarchist society is up and running, what do, what do we expect people's attitudes to be? And so the idea is that, look, um, education in this broad sense will come about through participation in society, through kind of a, uh, you know, Frarian schools, uh, Paulo Freire, um, and, and people will grow up with this. It'll be what you know, that you, um, uh, spend time with scientists, you spend time with historians, with philosophers, you spend time making decisions with other people. Uh, it seems highly unlikely that anyone is going to say, ah, fuck all this, I'm gonna go, <laughs> I'm gonna charge off into the jungle and be by myself. You know, I mean, a, the, the, an, an, a typical anarchist attitude would be, well, if some person really wanted to head off into the jungle and be by themselves and ignore uh, the rest of the community. I mean, that's right to do so. It's a very strange choice. Uh, you know, living an isolated life uh, is is not something that humans have ever done historically. I, again, you know, the Just one quick, quick question is it is it on off? In other words, the way that you've set this up is that you either abide by all of our rules, you go through our our education schools, or you're in exile. It, it seems oh, like oh, sure, you deny sure, freedom sure. in between. Where I go, hold on. I like most of the stuff, you know, I want to hang out with the philosophers, but the historians, no, thank you. I don't really like that stuff. I'm not interested. Sure, sure. I mean, no, no, no. I mean, there's no like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm one, you know, there's a certain, I, I want to object, object to the kind of abstract way you put this. So just picture we've got an actual society. Somebody says, you know, I want to skip history lessons. Well, so what? Fine. Of course, I, I you know, I can't imagine why a society would say, no, we're going to drag you into the history discussions, right? No one's gonna participate in everything. Some people spend more time with music. Some people spend more time with other things. But the point is we're trying to create a social milieu in which participating with the achievements of our society is encouraged for everyone. Certainly there will be strong encouragement to participate in some aspects of these. And, if, and, and in, some case, you know, in some cases, if you don't wanna participate in something, the rule is always you don't get to, if you don't, you can't take the benefits of it while refusing to participate in it, right? So maybe we decide collectively in our, in our society to, um, that everybody should contribute a few hours a month to the local hospital. Let's pick something that, you know, might be a collective decision. And, and, and one person says, nah, I'm not gonna, I'm just refused to do that. Well, you know, society might well say, well, then you don't get to show up to the hospital the next time you're sick if you're not going to, to support work in it. Uh, you could opt out of, of this social institution. But, you know, in some ways, the whole point of rejecting capitalism is to reject the idea that some people get to reap the profits of society without doing any labor in society, right? So it's not, it's not just a, a kind of principle, be nice to everyone, though certainly there's, there's a niceness involved. Um, it's, you know, people are expected to uh, contribute to the social welfare, just as they're, they have a right to expect to, uh, to benefit from social, uh, social goods. Um, now, on this, this question, sorry, there was a second part of your question, I've forgotten. Um, so the second part the of the question is about underlying norms. So oh, right, the underlying norms. Sure, sure, sure. So the first part you have to say is, like, you know, again, philosophers like, like thought experiments. And, and they like to like think that something that's imaginable is is is, is therefore important. I mean, it, it's extremely hard to picture a society uh, in which everyone gets a say and which people are making decisions generally via informed debate and such like saying, hey, let's kill one of every twin 
I mean, I mean, you know, you can imagine this, but but okay, let's let's do imagine it. What do we do? Well, I take it that a whole lot of us would say that's appalling. Those people over there are murdering twins, um, and we would do what you know anarchists have done throughout human history when they see slavery or or apartheid or uh, wars or genocide. They would intervene. We would go and we would say, no, you, you, we, will, we will prevent you from killing these people uh, gratuitously. Um, maybe we would uh, you know, say, look, if you guys have some kind of deep-seated psychological problem with having twins around, maybe, uh, how about you know, whenever twins are born, they come live with us and then you don't have to deal with this problem. There's a, you know, there's a quick solution. Here's the problem. Um, the way I've set the experiment up, maybe I'm being unfair, is that it is not the anarchist society observing some other society. It is an anarchist society who says, we have a norm in place, which is we deliberate and we produce rules as a collective. And they then produce a rule which is immoral. And I'm cashing out a particular example of it as twin murdering. But it could be that um, if anyone uh, worships a deity that we don't like, we kill them. And you know, it's a minority group and the, the collective has decided. And I want to know, is that internally contradictory? Because on the one hand, you're saying anarchism prizes participation and collective decision making. But on the other hand, I want to know, well, is there some side constraint? And you go, but we cannot decide that. I'll do anything for love, but not that. <laughs> the question is, what is coming in from the side that says these are the things that we cannot allow? No political system, no, no set of rules you write down with a political system is going to ever prevent the possibility of the people working in that system doing something horrible. I mean, you know, literally what, you know, you could write down a law that says you may never commit genocide or something, but then people in the political system can violate the damned law as we, you know, I mean, we've got some pretty nice uh, things in the, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and various uh, international law declarations from the United Nations and people violate them every, every day, constantly, right? So there's no way to give a, a sort of construct a system. What the best one can do is build societies in such a way that the violations of these things are, are, are uh, as unlikely as they can be. Um, for what it's worth, I have a paper in which I, I try to explain why uh, the rules themselves can never guarantee justice in a society. Um, but, but look, um, anarchists have always actually um, highlighted the role of morality in society. The, the idea that um, in order to have a decent free society, you have to work on the process of instilling moral thought in the, the citizenry. And people have to be, both can be and have to be uh, guided by, when, when someone in our anarchist society proposes killing people of a different religion, because it's a society in which we've all been trained to think through moral issues, trained to participate democratically, and all have the ability to do so, presumably a lot of us are going to um, object. We're going to say, but that's immoral. You're murdering people for no good reason, right? And we're going to resist it. I mean, I, I did speak of a, a second society because I, you know, I'm imagining a community in a city doing this, and there's going to be other people in other communities and other cities that can intervene. Now, you know, so, but if the question is, well, what if, you know, despite all the training and all the practice, you know, 99% um, of the people are just fucking evil and decide to kill the other 1%. Well, we're screwed. I mean, what's going to fix that? What, what, what possible institution could you have in place that would be such that if, you know, I mean, people that believe in hierarchy always say, always imagine the masses doing something horrible. They say, so we need some people in charge that will prevent the masses from doing this horrible thing. And then you ask the question, well, what if the people in charge do a horrible thing? Because so you've now- has, Mark Humor has your solution, right? Yeah. The solution to this problem that you think is unsolvable. And his solution is not a state. So his solution is to say that in his kind of system, which presumes selfishness rather than altruism, the only way someone would survive in the world is if they subscribed to a security company. So I don't think he would go so far as to say it's the only way they'd survive, but it's probably the only way they'd flourish. Um, and so what he would say is, 
in order for me to live in the world, I need to subscribe to this security company which protects me. And if I behave abominably, that security company is not going to protect me any longer because I won't be satisfying the constraints upon which I signed up. Um, and but that, that security company can't behave abominably either because it's not profitable to do so. So it will just slowly degenerate if it did. But it, but it, but it, but it can, right? I mean, what if, yeah, again, just taking the example you're giving me, you're imagining 99% of the people want to say, you know, kill 1% and whatever, use them as sex slaves or something. We've all got security companies. The 99% presumably have bigger security companies than the 1%. And they decide that it's in their interest to, to enslave that 1%. No, nothing about saying that the 1% can buy security companies is, is any prevention of that. It, it, it's, and, and in fact, the, you know, the fact that you've trained people and glorified in people the idea of accumulation and selfishness precisely invites that. So no, there's no... There's no solution to the question, what if, despite all of our best efforts, the vast majority of people become evil? It's going to be bad if that happens. Um, and, 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 you know, we can talk about how to make it less likely that that will happen. Yeah. And we can talk about how to organize people to resist that kind of thing. Yeah. And the problem is, of course, that, I mean, the, the, so the mechanism, the selfish mechanism of if you're you know, the sort of tit for tat mechanism that you were attributing to Mike, that applies just as well in an anarchist society as well, right? I mean, in any, and I'm, I'm a big, I think that's, it is an important mechanism. Again, I don't think people are inherently and always altruistic. I think we should encourage altruism. I think we should teach people to be more altruistic. I think we should reward altruism. But sure, I mean, the, the mechanism that if, you know, one way that society courses me is, in, a, in any free society, that if I treat you abominably, you'll stop associating with me and you'll stop cooperating with me and stop working with me. What's the one kind of thing in, in, in actual society that prevents that from working? Well, it's economic dependence, right? If I'm going to be without healthcare and without income and without you know, the basic conditions of life, if I lose my job, then I'm not gonna in a position to do anything when my boss treats me abominably. But if we have roughly equal uh, uh, access to the goods of society, then you know my failing to cooperate with you is just as harmful as your failing to cooperate with me. But you know, it's, it, 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 those, those kind of mechanisms only work in a society with rough equality. Um, if, they, if there isn't rough equality, then one side can abuse the other and laugh at its pathetic little security company. So um, I, I, I'm curious about this equality notion. So something we haven't pushed you on throughout this discussion. Mm -hmm. is you've assumed that in an equal society, there will be enough for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, um, anyone who has a right-leaning economic stance will disagree with that. They'll say that this is pie in the sky economics. You don't understand how economics works. You can't, you can't establish a successful society if you simply distribute goods equally. Um, they just will not be enough. In order to have enough for the people with the least, there have to be people with more. In other words, there has to be inequality that drives ingenuity. I, I think it's just a dogma of... of of people that refuse to look at societies where this is that have refuted this case. So, let's let's take for example the um, Mondragon collectives in, in that currently exist in uh, northern Spain in, in the Basque regions of of Spain. Uh, all industries there are collectively owned by the workers working in these industries. Uh, people are paid common wages and common uh, amounts of uh, ownership in the industries they work in. Um, you can leave if you want to, but you give up your ownership share uh, in any industry. You can't sort of take the stock with you. This is the way these things are structured. It's a very large, it, it's, and it's one of the most, even though it's operating within the broader capitalist system, it's one of the most economically successful uh, regions in, in Spain right now. So, I mean, I think that this is largely just dogma. Um, 
there's but there's there's two parts that I think there's some plausibility to that one might argue that you need um, incentive for innovation that people aren't going to just innovate and 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 do things and and, and that's that's true but let's think about where the vast majority of innovation actually comes from in modern society a huge portion of it comes from universities right what's called the AstraZeneca vaccine for COVID. It was invented by Oxford scientists uh, and then given to a corporation to distribute and, uh, and manufacture. Um, most of what made people like Bill Gates wealthy was basic science done by universities or in a few cases by military scientists who were also paid by the state. Um, there are incentive systems in universities. Uh, if I write a lot of original books, I, I, I advance more. So um, you can build incentives through uh, social prestige, even through income, right? There's no, when I talk about equality, I mean equality of economic power. It's not to say that every single person has to have exactly the same goods. That would be kind of a silly, silly view. And you might say, uh, if you work more hours than someone else, we'll give you more of the luxury goods of society. Or if you innovate, we'll give you more of those. What you won't do is build up control over the means of production in society. We won't give you the ability to become worth $100 billion, as, as Bill Gates is, uh, or, to, or to make the economic decisions for everyone else. Um, now, and then secondly, you might also argue that we need some kind of uh, competition. We need in, in some industries we need competition to spur productivity. Notice so capitalism has sort of as it were two prongs, right? There's private ownership of the means of production. So either an individual or a, a group of shareholders own the industry and take the profits of the industry and make the decisions for the industry. That's that's prong one. And the second is that that industry then in whatever it's doing, uh, competes with other industries. So other people can buy their goods from this one or they can buy, they can buy their widgets from Jones's company or they can buy their widgets from Smith's company. You can have the second without having the first. All right, an example was Yugoslavia where uh, roughly uh, every economic institution was co-owned by everyone working within it. This is also in a sense, the model in Mondragon now. But then the the, mar then the the goods were sold on a market. Uh, and, and so if the factory was more productive, the factory got more money uh, and did better. Uh, you could, you could uh, institute those kind of um, uh, competitive uh, mechanisms to spur productivity if, you, if, you, if society thinks they're necessary in particular industries. Again, as long as they don't allow one group to take over the uh, uh, economic decision-making and the control of things. I've never seen a capitalist actually give me much of an argument for why. Uh, you, you hear a lot of arguments for competition. You don't hear many arguments for private ownership. Now you, you, you can say things like, well, there wouldn't be capital to start a business. Uh, and that's true once you're already in a system of massive inequality where all the capital is held by uh, Wall Street traders and hedge funds and billionaires. But if you had a society of rough equality, uh, if people wanted to start an industry, they would have to pool their resources and start the industry. Uh, the, the, you would raise capital collectively the same way you do everything else. Um, I, don't, I just don't see why there's any reason to think that this um, control by the capitalist who then who doesn't contribute labor but takes away the vast majority of the profit is is in any way a positive for society. I mean, so I suppose one of the arguments for for capitalism is going to be something spelled out by uh, let's say someone like Pinker. When you go and look at you know the sort of evolution of human history over the last two hundred years, you know we see that as as 
as countries and societies have moved towards free market capitalism, you know, there's been um, improvements in basically every metric we think matters. So you've got less infant mortality, you've got greater life expectancy, uh, you've got uh, higher levels of um, uh, of prosperity, lower levels of poverty, and, and all of these things are sort of made possible because of the magic of the market, right? So, I mean, in an anarchist society, if you say to me, look, for the collective good, it would be useful if someone cleaned the toilets and, you know, someone did the accounting and someone, you know, toiled the fields, um, but you're all going to get the same amount of money as, let's say, the philosopher who sort of sits around pontificating. You know, what incentive is there uh, you know, to to do all that hard work, um, well, you say, well, it's for the greater good. And the way that you've posited the anarchist society really is this subtle trick of, well, we're all moral saints. We all know what's right. We're all good people because we've imbibed this in our culture. So we'll all do the right thing for each other's benefit. Whereas capitalism goes, look, um, the reason why you do this thing is because you will get a personal benefit out of it. And the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker aren't doing any of that stuff for anyone else's benefit. They're only doing it for their own. But it turns out that the the the, the effect of them privately acting on their interest is that people have lights and people have food um, and they prosper. Sure. If I think about the items in our homes right now, how many of them were produced in capitalist societies versus communist societies versus anarchist societies? I'll bet some of the stuff we own in our houses, and we'll say own because I have an ownership right over it. And if someone came into my house and took it from me, I would, you know, I would use the the might of the state, uh, to, you know, to use violence against them because I think I have an ownership right. And I suspect that uh, you would do the same if someone came and started freely appropriating your goods or liberating them. Um, but so some of that stuff's going to be made in communist China, you know, under these free market zones. I would suspect that almost none of the objects in our houses were made in, in, by anarchists. Um, or if you have some, they're interesting mementos. But most places, you know, our stuff comes from the, the benefits of capitalism from markets. You, you, you asked, you know, what, what incentive is there for people to do the really shit jobs? Well, in a capitalist system, let's recall that they're paid less than any other jobs, right? So it's not like the people that sit around pontificating like we're doing here are paid less than the migrant farm workers. The migrant farm workers are paid nothing. So the way that capitalism actually gets the shit jobs done is by telling a certain class of people that you're gonna die if you don't do this, right? Nobody is uh, choosing to be a migrant farm worker or to clean toilets all day uh, because of personal benefit. If, they're if you're comparing that to some other job. They're doing that because it's a matter of survival. So, you know, let's be real clear about why those shit jobs are being done right now. They're being done because there's guys with guns that will enforce the property rights, and those people will die if they don't do that labor for you. That's the system that you're endorsing. Uh, now, how many things? Well, I mean, very few things uh, that we use today were made in an anarchist society because anarchist societies have been wiped out and murdered. And it's important to, when you're thinking of these like grand stories about uh, the successes of capitalism to keep in mind things like uh, the conditions of uh, African children that are forced to crawl down mines to mine the minerals so that you can have telephones uh, with touch pads on them. Uh, the indeed, the conditions of migrant farm workers who in, the, in America are generally not even citizens, they're allowed in. This is the liberal position, right? The conservative position in America is fuck those foreigners, let's just drive them out and destroy them. The liberal position is let them come in with very, no, very few rights, no unions, so that they can be a hyper exploited workforce who are paid below minimum wage that we can just spray uh, uh, poisonous uh, pesticides on. There was a huge organizing campaign uh, to uh, in, in Virginia a few years back to allow migrant farm workers to step off of the fields before pesticides were sprayed by planes on top of them. And it was defeated because that was considered to be too much of, a, uh, of an imposition on uh, non-capitalist farming. Um, so you know, let's look at the conditions of the whole world, not just the conditions of the comfy few who are have lots of goodies to live in. Let's also look at the fact that, you know, there's 
World War I and World War II and the Holocaust and uh, the invasions of literally every country in Latin America except Costa Rica uh, by the United States in the 20th century, genocides in East Timor. Um, all of these are also effects of capitalism. And the fact you know, of absolute mass violence, and I could ask you, you know, how much of that violence, how does that violence compare to the violence of anarchist societies? Well, it's, it's equally stark. Now, um, goods. If you're asking me which goods were produced by uh, industries that are working, even within a, a system in which capitalism rules and rules by uh, force of arms, by, by threat of war, in which capitalism rules by keeping large swaths of the, country, of the world in essentially slave conditions. An awful lot of the things that I use in my daily life were not produced in a competitive marketplace. Uh, once again, computers were invented by, by university researchers at Berkeley and Stanford. Uh, the internet was invented by researchers employed by the US military directly, not by, not by capitalists. Um, I read a lot of books. Almost none of them uh, were produced by people who are making enough money to live on the books they're writing. They're either people that have another uh, day job and are writing books on the side because they want to uh, be creative or by people again that are employed in, in universities or other uh, collectively financed institutions. Um, what other things do I have? Yeah, some things are certainly capitalist products because there's no other way to get them. Though I, um, though in many cases, you know, uh, people that walk my dog are a collective, uh, wor worker-owned collective. Uh, some of my clothes were produced by uh, worker-owned collectives or uh, indigenous workers. Um, you know, absolutely, capitalism has has won in a certain sense. It's 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 hegemonic in the world, but it's not that right. I mean, this 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 cheery story that well, America decided to go capitalist and then everything was swell. Um, you know, let's tell an honest story. America exterminated the people that were living on this land in a series of genocides that probably killed 50 million people and wiped out hundreds of, of established societies. And then it imported hundreds of thousands of slaves who built the entire Southern uh, agricultural infrastructure. And it imported tens of thousands more uh, indentured servants who built Northern industry. And more of Northern industry was built on the backs of essentially slave child labor, uh, kids working in factories or mines at the age of 10 or 11 for 20 hours a day. Um, it, it's, it, there's still industries that are completely dependent upon uh, prison labor today. So, you know, this was not some magical accomplishment of competition and you know free libertarians sitting around and hiring hiring little security companies and doing things together this was uh, the, the the capitalist world that we sit on is historically and contemporaneously sitting on oceans of blood and abuse and war and torture and slavery that's where it comes from um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm willing to give up a few trinkets to stop all that. Um, if, I, if I get to play fewer video games in exchange for a kid not having uh, to dig heavy metals out of a tunnel in Nigeria, um, I can live with that. I think there may be an error, um, a, a conflation that you're making uh, between capitalism and statism. Um, so, for example, I just mm -hmm. do not see how World War II is a capitalist enterprise. I do see how it's a statist enterprise. I see how it's the German nation wanting to take over and expand. Um, I, I see how colonialism is a statist enterprise. I can also see how it can have ca capitalist underpinnings in addition. 
So for profit, they want to expand. Um, but the point is that in a, in a, a non-status system, in a libertarian system, you respect the, the rights of others. Um, and so you can't walk into a society and, and remove, remove people's property. Um, so, you know, you, you couldn't have a capitalist um, libertarian Nazi. Um, you just can't have them. Um, so sure. it, it seems the issue there is not capitalism. Uh, the issue is statism. I mean, first of all, the historical claim, right? I mean, World War I was, was entirely and explicitly a, a battle over who was going to control which colonial possessions in Africa among the European powers. Um, World War II, right? Henry Ford had rather a role in World War II. Um, uh, look at the US invasion. Why did the US uh, Marines go to Nicaragua? Because US, uh, what's called United Fruit, Dole later, uh, asked them to to come to secure. So, so the state is, is marching around in these imperial adventures precisely to enforce the interests of major uh, capitalist sure, but it's sectors the of the economy. Right, but so can you, have, can you have, so we're now, now we're not comparing, you know, sort of actually existing capitalism. We're, we're comparing imaginary capitalism, which is, is some sort of capitalism. We're, in, we're, we're, we're comparing with Mike Humer's capitalism. Okay, good. Um, so let's, let's think about that. First of all, it's not without a state because he wants a state to enforce property rights, right? No, no. so on his view, there's no state. Um, there's just a series of security companies that you would subscribe to. And he does believe that there would be some form of a legal system that arises um, largely through arbitration where security companies appoint an independent series of independent bodies to, to uh, resolve disputes. Um, but there would be no central body, no central authority. So there, so there isn't a, a legal notion of property. There's just whatever I can claim, and, and my guys with guns can claim it and, and 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 hold it. That's all there is to property in this in this view. Well, yes, but he thinks that the most profitable guys with guns will be the ones who respect property rights. But but what 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 are property rights, right? I mean, what 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 is who defines those, right? I mean, in 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 most libertarian thinking, there's a there's what's called a minimal state that's going to uh, adjudicate those issues, right? So your guys with guns say, oh, no, I own this, this block here. My guys with guns say, no, we do. Is it just we just shoot each other and whoever doesn't die is, is who controls it? Or is there some uh, uh, imagined overarching authority that, that settles that question? Well, no, there's a, there's a third option, which is um, an independent arbitrator. And why would there be independent arbitrators? Because that is the most peaceful way to go about the resolution and the most peaceful way will also be the most profitable. But it's expensive to go to war, that's his point. It's expensive to go to war. Well, it's expensive to go to war if you have a chance of losing, um, right? There've been independent arbitrators yeah, pick a, in, in things like the Western Sahara for some time or, or you know, the, the, UN, the UN has um, arbitrated uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict for years, but one side has massively more power and massively more of a military than the other side. And so the settlements keep expanding, the Palestinian regions keep shrinking and being surrounded by more and more. And, you know, so um, if I have 50,000 armed guys and you have five armed guys, I can't see for the life of me why I would have any uh, incentive to openly and honestly negotiate with you. I might ne you know, negotiate in the sense of saying, look, I won't go to the trouble of shooting you guys if you'll agree to work for me for $5 an hour and, uh, you know, and fill my factory up and be exploited workers. And you might think, well, my choices are doing that or dying, so I'll do that. So there's a peaceful solution. But the reality, but again, the reality is if you allow inequality in the fundamental kinds of power in society to develop, whether you call it a state or you call it a private militia, as soon as inequality comes in, there will be ways for the more powerful to game the system and exploit the less powerful. And if you're building this all around an idea of selfishness and self-interest, then they'll have an inclination to do that too. So, you know, you know, I mean, so I don't think the calling them 
uh, private security versus calling them cops makes in practice much difference here. And the reality is that, you know, all these sort of models of minimal states, or if you like, minimal um, uh, security institutions, in the face of inequality, they tend to expand, right? I mean, one of the claims of people on the, on the left and especially on the anarchist left is that it's easy enough to draw a conceptual distinction between capitalism and fascism, but fascism is the natural result of capitalism, right? I mean, why do states, so these states that are in theory democratic, why do they continually uh, make decisions that support the wealthy and not people on the, on the whole, not, not people in general? Well, it's because the wealthy have a greater ability to lobby, to fund candidates, to uh, offer people really expensive, uh, really well-paying uh, jobs once they leave government, all of these things. Um, you know, I, I mean, another, another way to look at this is libertarians routinely talk about the law of unintended consequences, right? You, you, you institute this well-meaning program but there are, and you know, you might put some restriction on, but they'll just, they'll turn out to be ways that the system can get gamed and some people will benefit and others won't. But they never seem to think that private property works like that, right? Um, that, that if I have the biggest security company, I'm not gonna find ways to buy off the arbitrator or coerce the people with less power who are coming into arbitration. Um, and I think history shows that that always happens that that always happens, that as soon as you start introducing uh, those kinds of institutionalized and reproducible uh, powers over other people, the powerful, you know, I mean, again, we, we going back to this question of um, whether people have to, we have to imagine that people are good or bad or whatnot. I mean, my view is just that people are highly plastic they have certain inclinations. We can encourage some and encourage others. <clears throat> but one of the best ways <clears throat> to encourage the worst in people is by giving them power over other people. It's extremely rare that a person starts off uh, as a really shitty human being and then they develop uh, the ability to coerce others and they become nicer. In fact, it goes the opposite way all the time. You see people that when they're dependent upon other people, when they're part of a community, part of a collective, <clears throat> they seem like decent folks, but then they get independent power, they get a bigger uh, security company or they get a job in government or something like that. And pretty soon they're cozying up only to the other rich people. So yeah, I mean, I think power corrupts. <laughs> it's to, to coin a phrase. So I've got one last question. It's it's one I put to Mike, um, which is if we imagine a political quadrant. So if you if you're as let's say an anarcho-communist in the bottom left, and let's say you've got a status communist, you know, in the top left, then you've got like a Pinochet um, capitalist fascist on the top right, and then you've got let's say someone like Mike in the bottom right being an, an anarchist capitalist. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, your your pick at the moment is you want to be bottom left. What's what's the next option for you? Where would you where would you go if I say you can't have that that quadrant? I mean, I'm gonna probably. I mean, so with, with one caveat, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick on the, I'm gonna stick more closely to the anti-authoritarian side than I am to the uh, anti-capitalist side. So I sort of feel more affinity to Mike than I do to uh, Stalinists, say. Um, but I think that over time, Mike's corner always moves up toward the moves toward the Pinochet corner, because he again because he's inviting a system in which some people are going to have bigger armies than other people, and once they do, they're going to want to institutionalize those armies and keep their power handed down to their kids, make sure their kids have more power than the other kids. So, so I think I think that that corner down there is inherently unstable. Um, and, and is always going to kind of uh, move up. But yeah, I mean, you know, if I have to choose between 
right now living with libertarians or living with uh, Stalin? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go with the libertarians. So that's interesting. Mike Mike picked your square as well. Uh, he said he would uh, move that way. And I told him the danger of your square is that it'll move up to Stalin. <laughs> well, I mean, it, 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 it can. I mean, it, it, it obviously can. And, and, it, and, and look, there's a chance any society that's built around uh, people's, you know, who's the, there's a conservative who, who once said that the, 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 the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Um, I, think that, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely true. As soon as you start sort of resting on the laurels that our society is awesome, because every society is going to have inequalities, first of all. I mean, you'll never fully rid yourself of this. And, and they'll start ossifying and they'll, people will start finding little ways to, to, to institutionalize them. And so, you know, if, if we're not constantly vigilant and constantly preventing that from happening, um, I think there's a, there's always a danger of moving up <laughs> towards Stalin. Um, the difference is that I feel like the, the, you know, the left corner, as you're describing it, sees that problem, has talked about it for, for a century, and is, is actively trying to educate everyone together on the need to work together and support each other in mutual aid. Um, Mike's corner is saying, no, no, greed is good. Selfishness is good. Um, let's just hope that that selfishness never gets so concentrated in some people that we move to Pinochet. Uh, so they're, you know, in a sort of, sort of way, they're not even trying to do the things that to me that are necessary for us to collectively prevent this slide to, uh, to authority. They were totally inverted answers, uh, the two of you. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. 